Easter, and Easter is, is coming quickly, April 1st, April Fool's Day, which I love. I love it because uh, as, as we get there, we're going to talk about the fact that um, in the Eastern tradition, the Eastern tradition likes to tell jokes on Easter because uh, Easter, the resurrection, was a huge joke on the devil. You know, it was a huge joke on the devil. He thought he won. He thought he won, and Jesus pulled a fast one on him. So, it's kind of a fun tradition, but we're here in this season of Lent, and I, I've always found that when we, when we sit in this season of Lent, when we sit in these seasons of waiting, similar to Advent leading up to Christmas, when you really sit in that season of waiting, it, it allows the celebration to be even, even bigger, even more meaningful. And so we're in this season of Lent where we're looking at the biblical concept, the biblical, biblical theme, tradition of lament, of pouring our hearts out to God, rending our hearts to the Lord. And it's a deep tradition. It's a deep tradition. I mentioned last week the Psalms. Of all the Psalms that we have, 30% of the Psalms, one in three almost, one in three Psalms are a Psalm of lament, of people pouring their hearts out to God. It's, it's often the language of prayer when we think about it. That, that is what lament is. It's the language of prayer of us pouring our hearts out to God. This week, we, what we want to look at as we uh, look at this theme of lament is lament for those who are yet in Christ. And I'm using that language specifically, this language of those who are not yet in Christ. I think that really frames it in a helpful way for us. I think growing up in the church, we, uh, and, and these words are appropriate, these are biblical words as well, but we talk about those who are maybe lost. And sometimes I've had conversations with people where you're like, well, we're talking about the lost, and they're like, no, 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 I'm not lost. I'm perfectly happy where I'm at. And you're like, oh, okay, I'm not trying to be, but that's the way we talk about it like in the church. So trying to, to reframe the way we even talk about those who, who we have a, a longing to see come into a relationship with Jesus. And I love this language of those who are not yet in Christ. It's an anticipatory language, right? Our hope, our desire is that one day they will be in Christ. And it might come soon. It might come later we don't know what that'll look like. We don't know what God's timing is, what their timing is and all of that, but it gives us hope to use the language of those who are not yet in Christ. It's uh, interesting, our tradition, the Evangelical Covenant Church, which came all the way from the motherland in Sweden in the 1800s, um, it was spawned out of a Lutheran tradition, but what we've been committed to from the beginning, because it was a renewal movement within the Lutheran Church of Sweden, so what we've been committed to is, is what we call the necessity of new birth that people would experience new life in Christ, transformational life in Christ. And not just be kind of part of like, well, I just grew up in this faith, so it just is what it is, but that they would for themselves come to have a personal faith in Jesus Christ. That's from the very beginning what we've been committed to. It's what shaped this movement that we're still a part of today. And so they would ask these questions. It's interesting, they, they would ask these questions in our denomination, and I love it because these have really carried forward and have, have shaped the way we understand uh, faith conversations. One of the questions that you hear often that people still love to throw out there is, there was a question early on in the church that really shaped the way they understood the Bible and the way that they let the Bible shape our conversations, which is, where is it written? So they'd get to these kind of faith and life things, you know, the intersection of faith and life. And they'd say, well, what, how do we make a decision as a Christian about this thing we're experiencing in our life? How do we make decisions uh, as people of faith about our relationships, about our work, about politics even maybe? 
these kinds of things, and they would say, well, let's go to the text and ask, where is it written? And they'd, and they'd work it out together in, in faith communities and in conversations as the people of God of where is it written in Scripture? So this is one of the big questions, the big questions that formed us. But there were other questions. One of them that I love that I think we've almost entirely forgotten is that they would regularly ask each other, how goes your walk? Can you imagine today just walking up to a friend, even if it's somebody that you know really well, and just saying to them, how goes your walk? Be like, oh my gosh, uh, my palms get a little sweaty because I'm like, i got to come up with an answer. When I was in college, I knew that there was a guy, this guy Mitch, in Campus Crusade when I was a part of it. I knew he was going to ask me something like that. I knew every week if I showed up at Campus Crusade, he was going to ask me something about like, what have you read this week? Where have you been digging into God's Word? And so it was a little bit weird because a little bit guilt trippy, but it forced me to be like, i got to come up with something for Mitch. So I better read something this week. So that when he asked me, but you know, it had a strange way of then creating a rhythm of life for me because I knew somebody was going to ask me, how goes your walk? What have you been doing with your life this week to reflect that Christ is in you? So that was one of the other questions. But the question that I I really want to get to in all of this is that we had this question that I was reminded of this week, and it's, are you yet or still in Christ? That was the third question that they would ask people. There's this question in communities where people would know each other and love each other, where they'd ask their neighbors, are you yet in Christ? Again, can you imagine asking a coworker this question over lunch? Are you, are you yet in Christ? But that's how much they, they were committed to seeing people come to know Jesus. That that wasn't awkward, it wasn't strange, that was a natural outflow of who they were because they wanted what they had experienced for themselves, they wanted it so badly for others. Are you yet in Christ? Are you still following Christ? And I kind of wonder if we've kind of lost this sense of passion. I think we all have a passion. We can all, maybe as I was praying earlier, you can all immediately think of people that you know that your heart just longs for them to experience what you've experienced. Your heart just breaks that maybe they've walked away from faith. Or maybe they grew up in the church, but it never really stuck, and you can't figure out why. Maybe you, you probably, you likely have family members, children, grandkids, nieces and nephews, brothers, sisters, who who maybe grew up the same way, and you can't figure out why did, why did it stick for you but not for them? And it breaks your heart. You're like, what? what's that about? And so I think that our hearts do break. We have this lament within us of, oh, that these people would come to know Jesus, that they would come to experience what I've experienced, what, what is going on. But I, I wonder if we've lost the ability to have conversations that are helpful. I, I don't know. I, I, we're going to look at that a little bit as we go on. But because our theme is biblical lament, I want to I shape the idea that if your heart is breaking for, for these folks, God's heart is breaking too. I want you to understand that, that God's heart breaks for those who do not know him. That, that God is not, I think that sometimes, sometimes I think unfortunately, our view of God is that he's kind of like, yeah, you make the decision. I'm cool either way. But I think the truth is, when you read the Bible, that God's heart is just breaking for those who don't know him. You know, Jesus tells these parables in Luke chapter 15 of the, of the lost sheep. 
that if one goes off, that shepherd is going to go searching like crazy to find that lost sheep and bring it back so they can have a party. He tells the prodigal son, where there's a son, of course, if you're familiar with the text, the son says, Dad, basically, I wish you were dead. I want everything that's, you know, my inheritance now, even though you're still living. And the dad says, okay, and the son wanders off and he squanders everything. But the text says that the dad, it gives this idea that the dad, the father, is scanning the horizon day after day, longing for the day when his son will return. Longing for the day, and when he does, when he sees him over the hill, he runs to him. Because he's just desperate for his son to return. And Jesus is painting this picture of the love of God. God as our heavenly Father who's longing for people to come back to him. Longing for people to come back to him. In Second Peter 3, we read about uh, Peter explaining, he says, The Lord is not slow in keeping his promise, as some understand slowness. Instead, he is patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. See, God's desire, God's deepest desire is that no one, no one would be separated from him. Let's not forget that in, in the way we pray for people and the conversations we have, that even the folks that you think are, are likely the farthest away from Jesus and there's, are, you can't even imagine them coming to know Christ, that, that God's desire is that no one would perish. No one would be separate. That's God's desire. That's God's desire. Jesus expresses this same lament in Luke chapter 13. And that's what the, this image is up here. Uh, I'm going to explain a little bit more where this image comes from because you're probably going, why on earth is there a chicken on my bulletin? And what is it about this chicken now that's on the screen? Is he ever going to tell us what this is? It's the weirdest, weirdest bulletin cover I've ever seen. But in Luke chapter 13, and it shows up again in Matthew, I believe, 24, Jesus comes into Jerusalem and he looks at Jerusalem and he says, Jerusalem... Jerusalem, you who kill the prophets and stone those sent to you, how often have I longed to gather your children together as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings, and you were not willing. Jesus' heart just breaks. He says, since the beginning, he's, he's, almost, he's using the language here of, of himself as God, of thinking back to they've, they've God, the triune God, has been trying to gather people up under the protection of his wings, and they were not willing. They sent the prophets, and now God sent his son to gather the people up. Again, because God's primary concern here, it seems, is that he wants to gather the people up. He wants people to be found and to be in a relationship with him. And so his heart breaks. Jesus here is just, is a sense that he's almost weeping looking at the city, looking at his people and saying, what else should we do for you to be found? For you to come into a relationship with God? To you for you to understand how much God loves you, what else do we need to do? And actually in Jerusalem, there's a, a church built where they believe the site of uh, Jesus' lament was. And I've, oh, I went too far. That's the one. So there's a church and it's supposed to look like a teardrop. Supposed to look like a teardrop, this church. Uh, this church here is called the Dominus Flevit, which I can't pronounce Latin. So if you know Latin and you're like, you just totally, too bad. I don't know Latin, okay? But in English, it means the Lord wept. The Lord wept. 
And it's supposed to be uh, on this site, this idea of this is where Jesus came in and he looked at Jerusalem and he said these words about how long the Lord has longed, just this longing to gather people, to gather his people. And in that church is where we find this image, this image. What's fascinating about this image is in Latin, the outside has the parts about Jerusalem, Jerusalem, and underneath in the red, it's hard to make out, it might be easier to make out on your bulletin, you have this hen which, which, interesting enough, has the halo saying that this hen is representing God. Gathering chicks underneath, and underneath the chicks it says, you were not willing. It's just this heart-wrenching lament when you think about that. Oh, I've been longing for these people I love to come back to me, to know me. I've sent people out. I've tried and I've tried and they... Oh, they weren't willing. That's gut-wrenching right there. Maybe you don't feel that. I feel that. The pain of God looking at the people he loves, looking at you and I, looking at the people he's created and saying, oh, I'm trying to do everything to gather you back, to be in relationship with you. What else do I need to do? And then finally, another biblical example of of someone weeping, weeping for those, just crying out, this gut-wrenching crying out for those who are far away from Christ. You have the Apostle Paul in Romans 9. And in Romans 8, he's been building up this big case of how amazing it is, how amazing it is what God has done in Christ. It's amazing. And then in Romans 9, he says, he says this, he says, I speak the truth in Christ. I'm not lying. My conscience confirms it through the Holy Spirit. I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. For I could wish, listen to these words of Paul. Because i got to be honest, I don't know if I've ever really felt this way this passionately. I want to just listen to these words and, and see if you can resonate. I think some of it you can and some of it, it's just hard to go there. He says, I wish I, that I myself were cursed. That's what Paul writes. I wish that I myself were cursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my people, those of my own race, the people of Israel. He's saying, I would give up everything I've experienced if it meant all these other people could know Jesus the way I've come to know Jesus. You talk about heart-wrenching, just imagine him on the floor weeping thinking about the people he knows, the people he loves, the people he doesn't even know, who he can't understand, how they don't want to be a part of this faith community, how they, why don't they want to know Jesus? What is, what's the disconnect? He's weeping, he's saying, I'll give up my faith, I'll give up my relationship if it means all of them get to be in. Whoa. I mean, that's a heart ripped open. Just saying, God, what else do I need to do? What else do we need to do to see people come to know you? Weeping for those who are yet in Christ, who are not yet in Christ. It reminded me that when I read this, the only, the only thing that for myself that I can begin to compare it to for myself in my own experience as I worked with young people for the first 12 years of, of full-time ministry for me, I worked with young people. And I continue to see the number of young people where I poured my blood, sweat, and tears, my time, 
sacrificing at times family, sac- for, for these kids to know Jesus. And now I, I know where a lot of them are in life, and, and it breaks my heart to see that, that not all of them found Jesus. The reality that not all of them are still a part of the church. It's like, oh, what are we supposed to do, Lord? What, what, what else should I have done? And for your heart to break. Maybe you can resonate with that as a parent, a grandparent, or you, you have other family members where you're just like, what else do we need to do so that our loved ones will be found, so that our neighbors will be found, so my classmates will be found? What else do I need to do? Because it breaks my heart because I think about these kids growing up today and, and sometimes we, we have this kind of like, oh, it's, it's about the same as it was when I was a kid. No, it's totally different. The pressures are different. Technology has made things different. There's all these things I could go on and on. That If, if you're fascinated by this information, I, I would love to point you to, to books by Chap Clark who talks about the, the way that kids are hurting and the way that they're hurting but they, they stuff it down and then they show up like, well, I, I still got to get the trophy and I still have to show everybody that I'm, I'm doing great but they're just stuffing the trauma, the anxiety down. And I've never seen anxiety and stress and trauma uh, like I've seen in this generation coming up. I've never experienced that myself or had those conversations in my generation, but now I've had those conversations regularly with kids and just the stress and the anxiety and being on medication at a high level at a young age. And thank God that we have those things for them. But, but then there's also the, the social stigmas where they don't get help, some of them. And you're just, your heart starts to break open and go, what are we doing? How can the church help? What, what can we do in these situations? You, you think of the loneliness some kids are experiencing. You know, it's crazy because we think about, uh, because we have these phones and we have these devices and we have social media, that we must be more connected than ever. We must be more connected than ever, but, but what I'm finding and, and what I continue to find, even a little bit amongst my own generation, I think others of you in other generations could experience this too, that, that while we may be more connected to, than ever, we're less committed than ever. And so people are feeling like, well, yeah, I have a thousand Facebook friends, but I'm sitting at home every night alone. And it's not the same as being connected, as being a part of a community and so there's these amazing things that the church can provide for people, a loving faith community, a loving community of friends, of people that will listen, of people that will care. But the, but, but the harsh reality is that more and more, the harsh reality for us in the church is that more and more these younger people are saying no to what we're offering. It might not darken the door of the church ever. Um. It breaks my heart. It really breaks my heart. And I know for many of you, it does for you as well. I want to give you some, some statistics. I've been really struggling to say that word today, even as I was kind of practicing this and explain Statistics. Not everybody likes statistics, but I think they're, yes, thank you. Ah, thank you. Yes. Ah, in front of the mirror. Statistics. Yeah. Um, I want to give you some of these. I know not everybody loves them, but I want to give you some of these to just show you kind of where we're at right now in trying to reach younger people. And I, I don't want this all to just focus on younger people. I want you to think about for yourself, whoever it is in your, in your community, your sphere of influence, who your heart breaks for, who, those, those folks who are not yet in Christ. But, but I, I just, as a church, and, and I think 
as a, as a bigger church, not just see me covenant, we have to start owning up to the reality that there is a generation coming up that are getting further and further and further from Jesus. And one of the things that I'm starting to find in a, that, that's really a, not chafing me, but as, as I'm just starting to wake up to this realization, I, I've been at some, some conferences and things, and people are like, we need a revival, we need a revival. And I'm starting to get to a place where I'm like, there's nothing to revive. Because a, a revival... A revival kind of understands that there's something, somebody had a foundation, a starting place, walked away. And so you look at the Billy Graham crusade, you look at these things, and there was a lot of people coming who maybe had an experience, had walked away, and it was amazing what God was doing. It's amazing to see the stories after Billy Graham passing away this last week, the stories just flooding Facebook of, of the impact he's had on millions of people. What a life lived for Christ. My fear is today that if somebody like that came forward to, to lead the charge, there's nothing to revive. And so you just need like a renewal. You need new life. You need the, the first steps. How do you do that? Where do you get there? Here, here, and here's why I say that. There's a public religion research institute, PRRI, last September, they released this, this huge in-depth study. Some of you maybe have seen this floating around on Facebook. In-depth study of religion in America. A few things caught my attention. They said this, the religiously unaffiliated, those who identify as atheist, agnostic, or nothing in particular. Okay, Th these are the group that they're calling the nuns, not the N-U-N-S. The nun, no religious affiliation, none don't want to have any boxes about me, no labels, none. This group now accounts for nearly one quarter of Americans. Almost one in four Americans says, nothing, I have no faith. Now we're not even talking about those who would say like, no, I'm just not Christian, no faith, no religious tradition, no religious connections, I don't want anything to do with religion. Whatever brand of religion you're selling, I don't want it. That's one in four and that number, listen to this, has tripled since the 1990s. So in 30 years, that number has tripled the number of people in our country who are like, want nothing to do with religion. Now maybe that doesn't surprise you, but that, that as a kid who grew up in the Midwest, it shocks me. Because in the Midwest, you kind of grow up assuming like, well, everybody knows a little bit about Jesus. Everybody has something that's centering their life. And that's why I say when you start to get to this place, you have to wrap your mind around the idea that there now is a growing group of people amongst, there is nothing to revive. They just are like, no thanks. And so to say to them, come to a religious crusade. Yeah, no. Come to church with me. No thanks. And it's growing and growing amongst younger generations in particular, in particular. I want, I want to look at uh, how it breaks down in generations as the last statistic I will give you. And it's here on the screen. This is how it breaks down generationally. That We're looking at the, uh, the top is the pink, and I know it's a little bit hard to see that it's pink, but uh, if you go all the way to the right-hand side, 65 plus, only 12% of 65 and over Americans are unaffiliated. 12%. And look all the way to the left what that number looks like. 38% of 18 to 29 year olds are unaffiliated, no religious background, no religion. Th this is what we're up against as we think about the future of the church. 
as I, as a pastor in the church, I think about my own generation there, only 26% are unaffiliated even. And so you see that it's growing as the generations go younger. And so you kind of come up against the fact of what, what are we going to do, church? If our hearts break for those who are not yet in Christ, if our hearts are breaking for them and we know who these people are, we know them because they're oftentimes family members, friends, and our hearts break for them, what do we do? Or do we just say like, well, that's the trend and you know, we're going to hang on to our faith as much as we can. What do we do? Because it breaks our heart. It breaks our heart. I find myself crying out, God, what's it going to take to reach this generation? What's it going to take? What will I need to sacrifice? That's a hard question to ask. That's a hard question to ask. I have grown up, I, I have to confess, I'm a church kid. I'm a church kid. I've grown up in church. I'm a church kid through and through. Mom and dad are Christians. I'm a Christian. Grandparents are Christians. We're just Christians all the way through. And to imagine that, like, that, that, that now, like, in our, it was, was mind blowing to me when I moved to Washington State. It blew my mind to be with kids who were like, yeah, nobody in our family is Christian. Nobody. Like, like what planet did you move here from? Like, you've grown up in the United States of America and you don't know anything about Jesus and nobody's a Christian? Like, am am I sure I didn't move to the Middle East or something? Like, what is going on right now? But, But this is the reality that we're living in. And so when I say that, I have to remind myself, what do I need to sacrifice? Because I have all this baggage of, of the way you do church. Because I grew up in church and I've, I, I, we, we uh, had some friends in town over the weekend and it was reminding like, I've never in my life like chosen a church to worship at. I mean, my parents chose the church we worshiped at and we worshiped there because grandpa and grandma worshiped there and so it was, that was my, my church. I moved to Chicago and I started worshiping at a church because I worked at the church. And I moved to Washington where I was working at the church and I moved to California because I'm working at the church. It's just an interesting thing where you start to go like, okay, well, I, I am so inundated and insider with what it means to do church, be the church, run church stuff, that, that have I lost touch with what it would take, with what it would t- truly take to reach those who are not yet in Christ. I think we have to ask ourselves those questions. So what would we be willing to sacrifice? Would we be willing to have tough conversations and say to someone, well, what would it look like? What would it take for you to come and check out this faith community? And I'm just going to throw questions out there today. I'm, I'm fully admitting today, I don't have answers. So if you're looking for like, yeah, so give us the answers. What's it going to look like next week? I don't know. And there's a whole lot of other people that don't know. That's why we're joining up this growing young assessment and all these things because they're, they're trying to come together and say, what does it look like? What, what is church in the next 10, 20 years going to look like so that we can reach people in Jesus' name? Not so we can be gimmicky or cute or anything like that. In fact, one of the things the growing young research looked for, and it's, a, it's kind of interesting, they, they use this language in the book. They say, people aren't looking for a cool church they're looking for a warm church. Doesn't it be cool? You know, we don't need to install a smoke machine next week, okay? So no worries, no fears. Like, all of a sudden next week, like, we're going to ask people to thrash on electric guitars because that's what we have to do to reach young people. They're actually looking for warmth and depth of relationships, community, real, authentic people who will say, even though you don't believe, you can still belong. 
and we'll stick out life with you. And we'll be there in the messes and we'll be there in the joys and we're going to stick it out with you. But, but you have to ask yourself, like, what does it look like to, to be a community that does those things? Culturally speaking, how do we develop as a church a culture that would say that's okay? We want young people, we want people in general, not just young people, to come and belong before they can ascribe to all of our beliefs. And so I continue to ask myself, what do I need to sacrifice? What assumptions have I made about what it means to follow Jesus that I need to kind of say, you know, maybe that's not a priority and that's something that, that I'm hanging on to as what it means, but it's, it's just not at the foundation of faith. I don't know, I'm asking myself these questions. I, I wonder... But see, for us, I think, uh, for us, when we lament, what is, what is amazing about the biblical idea of lament is that there's always hope on the back end. There's hope that, that the church will go on. Regardless, the church will go on. People will find Jesus. The question that I have is how will we participate in that? How will we participate in, in a new reformation or renewal in today's time? So, so the question is, though, what do we do in the in-between? I want to give just a few things, a few things that I think would be helpful things maybe for, for you, for me, to think about as we really think about this topic of our hearts breaking open for those who do not yet know Christ. What are some practical things to think about, some things that we can do in the meantime, in this meantime, in this, this time in between us, hearts breaking and knowing that, that God is still in control, the church will continue, People will know Jesus, but what do we do in the meantime, in the in-between time? I, I think that we need to be prepared to, to speak into people's lives. For a while, there was this, uh, this phrase that was popularized, and maybe you're going to go, oh, yes, I love that phrase. I do love this phrase. It's been attributed to St. Francis of Assisi. It's preach the gospel at all times, use words when necessary. Right? It's great. It's a great phrase. I love it. Preach the gospel at all times. Use words when necessary. That was kind of St. Francis' mantra. He would go around and it was more about the way he would live that would be in, in, infectious. That, that Jesus would, you just see Jesus in the way he lived and the way he talked, his attitudes. But I kind of wonder if we've come to love that phrase because it lets us off the hook to never use words. Where it's like, oh good. <laughs> now I never have to say anything about Jesus. Because I can just show people in the way I live. And I wonder how many times we've missed opportunities or shied away from opportunities because we're like, I don't have the words, I don't want to have the words, maybe I don't even need to have the words. And so we're not prepared to give an answer for the hope we have. We're not really prepared to, to share our story of the way that, that God has impacted our lives we're not prepared to invite someone when the opportunity happens to say, I will bring you to church with me. Sit with me. Let's have lunch afterwards. You know, that changes it when you say to someone, I want to bring you. I want to meet you in the parking lot. I want to walk in with you. Let's sit down. And if something was weird and bizarre about what we did at church, I want to know about it. I want to know why. Why was that strange? What, what struck you as different? Oh, see, I wouldn't see it that way. I just, this is what we do. And be able to have those really, really cool faith conversations with someone. Uh, what, what does that look like to open that door and say, okay, I'm actually going to use some words. And, and, I, and I'm afraid, but I'm going to step through this door that has opened up. I'm going to take the opportunity to use some words over lunch with a coworker, a classmate, a neighbor. 
You know, not, not asking you to go out and, and reach people who are on the ends of the earth, who are the, the craziest, wildest, most hedonistic people in the world, but to say people right now in your sphere of influence that you could say, I want to bring you to experience what I've experienced. Or I just want to grab coffee and just ask you about your own background, your life, and could I have a chance to tell you my story, my testimony, if you will. These are the opportunities I think we need to be looking for today. Uh, again, though, I want to give you some practical things. So I've already mentioned just being ready to share your story. Have you thought about the, the, the way that God has impacted your life, your story? Moments that are just little snippets of your life that you can share with people. Not the full thing, you know, I was born on a cold winter night in 1980. and No, 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 no. Not all of that. People don't need that part. Your faith story. The ups and downs of it. The, the struggles. Share those things. It's fine. It's real. Be helpful for others. I think we also have to recognize that we're partners with God in this. Sometimes we put this huge pressure on us that like, I have to seal the deal. I have to make this happen. You're a partner with God in this. You, you can't make something happen. The Holy Spirit has to be moving in that person's life. You can't make it happen. You can pray and pray and pray and pray and pray and pray and pray. Please never stop praying. But the Holy Spirit has to be moving. Has to be moving. Has to be moving in you. Has to be moving in the other individual to make this happen. So don't, don't feel like you have to seal the deal. I've been in that moment in youth ministry where I, I've been in these situations at camps and things where it's like, all right, counselors, listen. Today's the day where we're making the gospel pitch. And you need to be ready to pray with these kids. And you're like, oh my gosh, what if they don't accept Jesus? Am I going to be on the hook for this kid's salvation? Whoa. Now, it's appropriate to be ready if they have a question, if they want to know. But the Holy Spirit has to make that first move. The Holy Spirit has to be involved. I mentioned pray. Pray and pray and pray. Never stop praying for those who are not yet in Christ. Never stop praying. In college, we used to take like a little index card and we would just, uh, in our small groups, write the names of some people that we wanted to intentionally pray for that week. People that we knew we were going to interact with. I was a college baseball player. I knew when I went to baseball practice, like out of the 40 guys on the team, I think three of us were professing Christians. And so I knew I was going to have a lot of interactions with non-believers, with people who are not yet in Christ. And so I'd write those names down, just, you know, I want to be intentionally praying through my interactions with them and how I am representing Christ to them, and the, and the words that I say, and the way that I treat them, the way I behave. I don't know if that would be helpful for you. You just slide that index card in your pocket, in your purse, and I found for me, at least, you know, you reach in for your keys, and you're like, oh, that, there's that index card. That's right. There's those two or three people that I want to be intentionally praying for this week, that the Lord would open up conversations with them. Finally, I think developing deep relationships uh, growing young materials, they talk about the value of people and relationships over programs. This is what they found over and over again from their research of growing young. They said, when we asked what keeps people involved in the church, so they asked young people, what keeps you involved in the church? The highest response was personal relationship and warmth of the community was equally mentioned. It said, beliefs comprised, now some of you are going to hate this stat, Beliefs comprised only 6% of the young people's responses. Only 6%. 12% was, uh, and, and only 12% of leaders 
but only 3% of young people, only 3% of young people said they were staying in their church, committed to their church because of beliefs. They were there because of relationships. That's why they were sticking this faith thing out. And I know for some of us, we're like, oh, but what about the beliefs and what about the Bible and what about, listen, that stuff happens in relationships. When people feel comfortable asking, can I ask this question about what we believe, what you believe? Can I ask a question where I have a doubt and I want to know more? It happens in deep relationships, in deep relationships. So I want to kind of end at a place of just saying that at this point, I believe in our, in our community and the conversations I've had with all of you that our hearts do break for those who don't know Christ. Our hearts are broken for them. But I want to encourage you, as you think about that lament and as you pour your heart out to God, to also have hope. To have hope that your prayers are heard. That the Spirit of God is working in people, is at work. Oftentimes, I found in youth ministry that, that the most amazing thing to do, the most amazing thing, is to recognize where God is already at work in somebody else's life and they don't see it. And to say, I, I think that might be God. And for them to go like, well, I don't know. I don't know about that. Just for the moment, let's think, what if that is God in your life right now? That's, that's an amazing, privileged moment to be with somebody. And so I want to just give, just give you some hope that your prayers aren't, don't go unanswered. The Lord hears you. There's hope that people will come to know Jesus because that's God's hope, that all people would eventually be found by that Father scanning the horizon longing to run out to them and embrace them. Let's pray. God, we know that it is your desire that all people would be found. All people would come into a relationship with you, their creator, the one, Lord, that loves them, the one that breathes life into their lungs each and every day, that all would be found. That is your desire God, as we think about those people that, that we know and love who do not yet know you, God, we do pray for them. We pray for our opportunities to have conversations with them, to do life with them, have a meal with them, coffee with them, work alongside them, go to school alongside them. God, we pray for those opportunities. Lord, Lord both that we would have words and that the way we live our lives would, would accurately ref reflect the fact that you are present in our lives. God, help us to have words when necessary. Help us, God, by your Spirit's power to have the words. Help us to recognize where you are moving. Lord, not only in, in the lives of those that, that we want to see come to know you, but help us to, to be clear that in the way that you are moving in our lives so we can share those stories. God, we, we, need, we know we need to partner with you in this endeavor or, or nothing will happen. We know that we need to partner with you, God. Help us to rely on you, trust in you, lean on you as we think about those who, don't know, who do not yet know you. We pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen.